0: Hey, everybody, this is Richard Deitch, and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. Uh, heavy topic this week, but it's something that I thought it was important to do. You know, all of us have obviously been impacted by um, the tragedies in Buffalo and Uvalde, Texas. And, you know, I have a what I would consider a small medium here, but, you know, if I have the opportunity at least to, bring on someone who can provide some insight or enlightenment, Um, I I just thought I should take the time to do this. You know, I'll always do a sports media podcast every week, but I wanted to do something a little different this week. John Woodrow Cox is an enterprise reporter for the Washington Post who has focused on the impact of gun violence on children. He's also the author of a book on the subject, Children Under Fire, An American Crisis. Um, You've probably seen him on television on this subject. Unfortunately, uh, he's one of the best reporters and writers at the Washington Post. Uh, The fact that he does this work, it's so vital and important, but at the same time, it's also devastating that he has to do it. And so, we had a a 45-minute conversation on the impact of gun violence on children in the U.S., how he covers this stuff, um, what it's like to interview kids and how to get permission to interview kids. the notion of what solutions are out there, what bullets do to bodies, and should media outlets show those images if adults or the families of adult victims are are willing to um, give permission? It's uh, again, it's fifty minutes on a pretty vital topic. There's no sports media on this one, but I do think if you listen to the full conversation in full, you'll you'll come away with a, a better understanding of of what's going on here. So Washington Post writer John Woodrow Cox coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. All right, as I said at the top, Washington Post writer John Woodrow Cox is an enterprise reporter for that media outlet. He focuses on the impact of gun violence on children. He's the author of a book on the subject, Children Under Fire, An American Crisis. Um, The last, uh, unfortunately, the last week, week and a half or so, John, has been um he's done a lot of media because unfortunately he is somebody um who's become expert on this and and people want to talk to him for some insight he's very kind enough to give uh me some time he obviously does not do a ton of sports media podcasts i would imagine in his line of work but i am pleased to be joined by john woodrow cox of the washington post john thanks for your time
1: Yeah. Thank you for having
0: me. I wish the topic was different, but this, um, you know, we've interacted at least online over the years. And, um, and so I know at least you, uh, I know you a little bit just sort of through that medium and, and you were the person I, you know, I wanted to do something like every person in America, like anyone who has any kind of forum, you know, you want to talk about this stuff. You may be frustrated, or I I should be specific to me, I am frustrated because it seems like nothing ever changes or gets done. But if you have a forum, you at least want to present something informed out there. And that's why I'm calling on you. Um, Every day in America, children are shot, they see others shot, they lose loved ones to guns. This is your beat as macabre as it can be. And so let me start here. How do you report on children experiencing gun violence? It's it's really an an intentional open-ended question.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's a thing I just kind of just keep trying to turn the lens, you know, uh, because there's children are affected in so many ways that go unseen uh, in this country. You know, the obvious way is school shootings. That's for many Americans. The only form of gun violence they care about at all actually is. School shootings, but it's so far beyond that. It's accidental shootings every day. In the course of this conversation, a, a child will find an uh, unsecured loaded gun in a home and will fire it. And you just hope that they don't kill themselves or somebody else with it. Uh, children uh, take their own lives, especially teenagers with teenagers with unsecured guns every single day. Uh, children are killed in um uh, in you know black and brown communities, because of uh, because of gang violence, because of uh, turf disputes, those things happen all of the time. Uh, domestic violence—that's a way that kids are routinely um, harmed. And you know what what got me into this—it was 2017—was when I started on this uh, run of coverage, and the first kid uh, was a little boy, a second grader in Southeast D.C. named Tyshawn McFadder. and he was somebody who would have never normally appeared in a newspaper. Uh, his father was shot to death outside of his school in the middle of the day in Southeast. And I followed Taishan for about two weeks. Immediately after that, I met him at a vigil. It was freezing cold in DC and he insisted on speaking on his father's behalf and he just wept the whole time. And so I, uh, you know, I went with him, Uh, I was with him at home the morning of the funeral. I went with him, sat next to him at the funeral. I went back to school with him. He ended up becoming really one of the two central figures in my book. But what I learned through the reporting on his story is that we have not begun to grasp the scope of this crisis. Taishan was not considered a victim of gun violence at all. he lost his father, but legally he was not considered a victim of anything. That same week that his father was killed, uh, they had asked his school, which was an elementary school. It was only up to like third grade. So we're talking six, seven, eight year olds. They'd asked them to draw pictures of what makes you sad in your neighborhood. And these kids drew pictures and crayon and marker of of vivid graphic uh, forms of gun violence. People shot dead on the street, funerals, uh, grave sites. And I remember, I'll never forget, I'm standing you know, in their auditorium, and I'm looking at this wall, this display that they've made, and it's right next to this cat in a hat uh, figure. And it was like, it, it, we're missing this entirely, right? We're missing it entirely. We do not, we cannot comprehend the millions of kids. It's not hundreds or thousands. It's it's literally millions of children who are impacted by gun violence. And I'll quickly cite one study that I used to illustrate this point all the time. It was a study done in Chicago. And what they looked at is uh, neighborhoods where there had been homicides. They found that children did worse on their test scores the following week if they simply lived in a neighborhood where someone had been shot to death. So they didn't have to know the person. They didn't have to see it. They didn't have to hear it. They just had to know someone was shot dead in my neighborhood and it affected them uh, so profoundly that a week later they did worse on their test scores. So. You know, much of my work has been devoted to that idea of the kids who are not actually physically harmed. Uh, you know, the work I did, Tysha was central to the book. The other thing that was central to the book were these kids in Townville, South Carolina, a group of first graders who'd all been on a playground when a teenager pulled up and opened fire. The shooting lasted 12 seconds because his gun jammed. One child died. And every kid on that playground has really they have never recovered, you know, because they were just there. Same thing with kids who were in the school who who didn't even hear it. So, you know, I followed one girl in particular uh, for the book. And, you know, she's still to this day on antipsychotics and antidepressants. She's never gone back to school. Uh, She still hurts herself. Um, You know, when she saw the news about the shooting in Texas, she just had a complete meltdown. And this is a 12-second shooting because, A, because of her own fear, but also because the boy she loved. Uh, jacob hall is his name he was six years old he was the smallest kid in that first grade class he died and she's never gotten over the guilt of leaving him behind because she ran Uh, she's never gotten over that so you know i know it's grim to describe all this but uh, the way i view it is if we if we don't expose people to the reality there's no hope for change at all right people even even Changing people's own minds—it's not possible if they do not comprehend what we're doing, what we're allowing to happen to our kids in this country. All
0: right, there's a lot there. So the couple things I want to get to uh, first, sort of on the journalism or the journalistic side: How does one go about getting permission to talk to um, children of the ages that you you talk to? I mean, I think some of us would think, okay, you have to get some kind of parental consent, but that also can be tricky, right? Just depending on who you're going to talk to, where you're going to talk to them. So given that you've done this, unfortunately, many, many times, how does that process work?
1: Yeah. So, you know, you always start with the parents. I mean, often I'm introduced to a parent via a teacher or, you know, through somebody else, uh, and have I do a lot of pre-reporting before I talk to a kid, right? I think that's really central for journalists who are going to talk to traumatized children is you could talk, you should talk to everybody in that kid's life before you actually talk to the, the child. And, and I do that for a couple of reasons. One is to know if they have triggers, if there's words that I shouldn't say or subjects I shouldn't bring up or uh, any number of things, right. That I just areas that I shouldn't get into. Uh, and then two, also, if I can, ask someone else a question rather than asking the kid that question that might be really difficult i'd like to do that right so if i can get a detail from somebody else um i'd rather do that uh you know when it comes to the time to talk to the kid i first thing i do is explain to them exactly who i am and what i do even kids as young as I mean, the youngest kid i've ever interviewed was four it's a kid in cleveland who was shot in the head in a road rage incident and survived the a bullet you know um yeah I went around his temple and popped out his forehead, and uh, but even a kid that young, I explain to them what that I what I do, what a newspaper is, what the Washington Post is. I show them. I take out my phone and show them articles, and I say that you know, I'm here to tell your story if you would like to, right? So I do as much as I can to give them agency. I always ask their parents to be present in the room uh, when I'm having these conversations, and I always tell them too that if there's a question I ask that they don't want to answer. That's okay. I'm not an authority figure. I'm not a teacher. And, you know, I even go to the length of, I sit, I try to sit on the floor. So I always I'll ask them, where do you want to talk? And they always want to talk in the room because they want to show me their toys and show me their stuff. That's what kids want to do. So I sit on the floor. I try to get my eye level below theirs so they feel like physically they're in charge. That's the goal, right? It's always to say that you're in charge. And, um, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've gotten to the, inter- the end of these interviews and the parents, tell me that they've never heard most of what the kid shared because no one's ever asked them. You know, people are afraid. They think that, um, you know, it'll re-traumatize them. They think it'll, it'll be too hard. These kids in most cases are desperate, desperate to share. I, I two quick examples that I can think of. Um, one was really recently, the last piece, the piece of the series that I'm doing this year is on children who, uh, how many parents, or how, I'm sorry, rather, how many children lose parents to gun violence, uh, every day in America. And it took me years to calculate that number. Uh, but in 2020, the number was at least 41 children a day who lost a parent to a gun homicide. That's not suicide. That's just strictly gun homicides. Uh, and I was talking to this kid in Baltimore, he's 13 and he's laying on his couch and, uh, He had lost his father in 2017, and then he lost his mother in 2020. So he was orphaned in two separate shootings by gun violence, he and his sister. And he's laying on the couch, and I'm just asking him about his parents, who they were. And he just looks at me and says, no one's ever asked me any of these questions before, right? This is a kid who's never gone to therapy, um, who's just never gotten that support. And for him, it was, he couldn't wait to talk. I mean, it was cathartic just to have somebody to talk to. And then another example that I'll I'll quickly offer is uh, these parents in South Carolina, this wasn't Ava, the main girl, it was another girl, her name is Sienna, and had a really secure home life, a very supportive family. Um, They lived in a really nice house. In the immediate aftermath of that school shooting, she couldn't be alone. She had nightmares. She would lock the door, lock all the doors all over the house all the time. She would uh, run at the sound of cars backfiring. She really had a lot of obvious trauma in there are really going and when i went back a couple of years later to uh, interview her and her parents i talked to her parents first and they said i think she's totally over it she doesn't talk about it anymore she doesn't seem to have that trauma so then she came out we were sitting on this deck she comes out and sits and i asked her you know if this is a thing that's on her mind anymore and she goes on to detail uh her precise plan on what she will do the next time a school shooter comes to her school. She knew who she would take with her, where she would run, where she would hide. She would calculated it all in her head. And she'd also done this like math to say that, well, you know, I had one five years ago. So there will, before I leave school, I will definitely have another one. And her parents were just like, their minds were blown by it. Right. So, you know, I, I think that there is uh, beyond, beyond the journalistic purpose of it, there is real value in just giving these kids a chance to say, here's what it is that I've been through. And here's how I feel about it. Because journalists, for whatever reason, rarely give them that chance. It's hard. I get it, but it's a thing that industry-wide, we need to do more of it because they have a lot to say.
0: You went to Uvalde, correct?
1: I did not. No, I've, I've not. been reporting because okay. I was in, contributing to about twelve different stories, so I, I ended up staying and reporting from here. But I did talk okay. to. Uh, I did have an in-depth interview with uh, a family uh, in Uvalde. Okay,
0: all right. My my uh, my correction there. So you report you reported on it. You were not there um, from your experience and from talking. Obviously, your colleagues who have done that kind of reporting. Um, how how challenging is it? And is there any correct way to try to report on what is people's singular worst day, week, traumatized, obviously, off what this is? Um, you know, there's, the reality is there's probably no playbook in a journalism school when you ultimately sort of face somebody who's – who's dealt with this kind of loss and maybe feel certain despair. So what have you found either when you personally have been in this position or what can you tell my listeners about what the reporters are, at least the good ones are attempting to do in Uvalde?
1: Yeah, I I wrote, um, I actually wrote a piece for the Dart Center for the journalists on the podcast uh, about how to interview traumatized children. And, but it really applies to adults. It applies to anybody. And, You know, I always say that um, step one is to be human first and a journalist second, right? These people, you are showing up on the worst day of their lives or closely thereafter. And, you know, the first thing I tell people is how incredibly sorry I am. You know, that's and that dates back to when I was a cops reporter knocking on doors in Florida, you know, uh, for somebody who just lost a loved one. That's you have to start there. And the, the minute that you that's not your instinct is when you need to quit doing this uh so i start there and you know um another technique that i've picked up through the years uh, and this is not unique to me but i think it's really important is that you can't leave people in the place that you're going to take them right so we take people i take people to very dark places you have to right you're 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 trying to surface their agony, the memories of that day, you're trying to reconstruct whatever it is that's happened. Uh, That's, you know, people cry in front of you. They're going to, they're going to weep in front of you. And when they do take a beat, ask them if they want to keep going or if they don't, but when you're done uh, with that conversation, I have always have questions on the back of my notebook that can bring them out of that place, right? You can't hang up the phone or walk out the door with them still being in the moment where they either survived the shooting or lost their child in the shooting, uh, something that brings them back, right? Uh, So with children, sometimes that's sort of bringing them back to their favorite subjects or their favorite hobbies or what they're gonna do in the summer or uh, their favorite TV shows or something they're looking forward to, anything to bring them psychologically back out of that place. I think it's like, it's, it's critically, it seems simple, but it's critically important that journalists do that. Um, you know, I think that, uh, some of it just comes with time. I mean, the question that I ask children the most is what happened next? You know, like if you ask a kid, how do you feel? They'll always say, okay, (laughs) like there is no other answer that a kid gives you other than I'm good or I'm okay. What I try to get most often from children is just uh, a, a recollection of their memory of what happened. And their emotions, the emotions that they want to share will come out organically, right? So much of what I'm doing is just trying to steer them. You know, I'm not sitting there with a list of 50 questions. It's just I want to have a conversation with another human being about whatever it is they've gone through and uh, just trying to steer them, right? Because kids will bounce around and they'll think of other things. And so I just kind of gently bring them back and bring them back. And that's a lot of what I do, too, with adults. And, you know, I, I think, too, that... We think that, journalists think that interviewing children is harder than it actually is. Uh, there, there is no more honest, raw interview mm-hmm. than you can have than with a child. And one example in particular, you um, know, a lot of what I do is not even the interviewing, right? It's immersing. Like, I'm actually trying to immerse, spend days and days and days. And when I, when I go to Uvalde, which I will you know, in the coming weeks, that'll be what I'm trying to do, you know, more than just sitting with someone and saying, answer these questions. It's immersing, it's observing, you know, in their life. And I think of a moment with Tyshawn, uh, in particular, it was the morning of his dad's uh, funeral. And um, Tyshawn had picked out an outfit that was his dad's eighth grade homecoming outfit. It was like, he'd so I've seen a picture. And he said, that's what I want to wear at my dad's funeral. And he's getting dressed, and I'm there in the room with him. And and he picks up his clip on tie. He, he doesn't know how to put on a tie because his dad, you know, it's the it's thing his father would have t- taught him. Right. It's how to put a tie on. And he didn't know how to do it. So he looks at me and says, can you help? Right? And, and like, you know, instinctively, I'm flying the wall. Right. Don't you know. But then there's this moment where it's like, there's no way I'm going to go call his mom in or say no I mean, that's where it's being a human first. Right. And so I put my notebook away and I walked over and helped him put his tie on. And then the moment that is relevant to this question is that a a minute later. So he's got his he's got his clothes on. He looks down he looks up and he says, whoever invented guns needs to stop. So he says, if an adult says that to me, I'm not even going to write it down. Right. There's nothing profound about an adult who understands what that will sound like in a newspaper article uh that's just him saying that's not him thinking like oh this is going to show up you know in the third section of the story that's him just in a moment on the morning of his father's funeral saying this is how i feel about this and it was incredible i'll never i'll never ever forget it i'll never forget it and and that kind of thing happens uh all the time and it speaks to the value of um Doing the hard thing and asking if can I talk to your child and can I spend time with your child and uh, you know can I just exist in their space for a while?
0: You um, you cover the worst of uh, of sort of gun gun shootings, which maybe that's not the right phrase, but you, you sort of you cover the worst of of what one can see when it comes to yeah. gun violence, and so. You know, obviously, I could do three hours with you on why the United States is in the place it's in, and you know what are the right things to do or not the right things to do. But let me sort of try to distill it to to this point. I've noticed uh, on your um, social media feed, and I've been off Twitter a while, but I but I went back to prepare for this interview and do some research because I wanted to see what you were saying about this. And one of the things that you've put out there, which I appreciate, because I think you're obviously, you're an expert on this, is there's a lot of mythology around like, well, this can't work because of this, or this will work because of this. And one of the things you've been really harping on is this notion, which I sort of hear all the time about, you know, good guys with guns can can stop bad guys with guns. And the reality is, and what you found in your reporting is that's just a fallacy. That like... Good guys with guns have routinely failed to stop bad guys with guns who are intent on murdering school children. Yeah. But and this is, I guess, I, I don't expect you to have an answer to this, but how if one can't if one is not willing to accept factual information about a mythology, yeah. right? How how can how can how can one support change or how can one advocate change that's on the citizen level and then obviously as we get to the political level there are people obviously in washington who politically will not go to a certain place because they believe it will cost them politically perhaps ending their career in politics so i i can only imagine the frustration that you must feel it's like it would make me want to honestly bang my head against the wall a hundred times that you you are presenting what is the factual sort of argument here not even argument you are presenting what is factually correct yet you cannot get past the mythology of yeah. something that's incorrect so how do you i don't know how do you deal with it or do you do yeah. i don't know it's not i wish i could ask a more, <laughs> more elegant question but i i i feel for you because i feel it myself but yet you actually right. know this right. stuff you know this shit and like but yet no one not enough people are yeah. listening to you i, I guess is yeah no
1: i i I find um comfort in having work to do, you know, and having the work to do, right? So when I feel overwhelmed and helpless and hopeless, which I did for an hour probably on Tuesday, I felt physically ill, I felt total I was totally physically overwhelmed by it. And I needed a story to do, right? Like I needed work to do. And that is sort of I mean you're you're what you said is exactly right it's incredibly frustrating right to uh get people who tweet at you and say well all we need to do is have more guys with guns in these schools and where i know that you know when we reviewed in 2018 we reviewed from columbine to 2018 uh how many school shootings had occurred at schools where a um there was an armed guard or a police officer and I, uh, off the top of my head, I think it was 68, but it was around 70. Around 70 school shootings had occurred at schools that uh, where someone had a gun, right? And yet that mythology persists. Uh, this was something like uh, at the time it was about 40% of the school shootings in that period, there had been someone with a gun. And the truth is because school shooters in most cases show up and the shooting is over in a minute. So unless you have 50 guards and they're all quick draws, uh, you know, there was a shooting in Kentucky that I wrote about. Uh, it was, I think, I think it was either 14 or 16 children this is a sad that I can, I, you know, have so many in my head that I can't remember precise numbers, but either 14 or 16 kids got shot, two of them died. And the shooting was over in less than 30 seconds. So unless you were standing right next to the gunman, um, you know, you're not going to be able to do anything. The, the difference in this country and every other country Every other developed nation where none of this happens is the number of guns that we have in this country and our inability to regulate them properly. It's that simple. Americans are not uniquely evil. We're not more evil than people in Australia or Canada or the UK. And our crime rates, other forms of crime rates are are the same. They're consistent with all those other countries. So that is what makes us different. I will say that there is a misperception in our country and even in our industry that Americans are split on this like they are on every other political issue. Overwhelming majorities of Americans want all sorts of gun safety reform, including things like background checks and red flag laws, even gun owners. Uh, I mean, I've had gun owners all over the country who tell me that uh, they think there should be licensing for guns, that everybody who buys a gun. And these are gun owners, like because they, they know they could pass the background check and they can get the license. Where there is, certainly there's a faction, right? And they're all on Twitter. Uh, all of them, right? There is a faction who are on the far, far, far right who will never see reality. Who think everything that we say is made up. It's not different than the people who think that Donald Trump, you know, won the last election. It was stolen from him, right? There, there is no evidence that you can present to those people. That is going to change their minds uh, because literally no journalists in America spent more time (laughs) reporting this than I have. And I can't convince them. And you have to accept that. But the truth is, those people are not the ones standing in the way of sweeping gun reform in this country. There are 10 Republican senators who are making the decisions for over 300 million Americans. It is that simple. If either the Democrats decided they were going to work around the filibuster and they were going to pass gun legislation with a simple majority, or if they could get 10 Republicans to say, yeah, we'll support you. That is it. That's it. And it won't change until the political cost is greater in one direction than it is the other. Until they're more afraid of Moms Demand Action and all those voters and and millennials and uh, the Columbine generation, until they're more afraid of those voters than they are of the gun lobbyists and the NRA and conservative um, websites who will label them gun grabbers, things like that, which does happen. That's not, that is a thing that happens and that costs these people elections in conservative states. Until that switch happens, this is where we are. So this, we tend to overcomplicate the issue. And we definitely tend to think that Americans are split 50-50 and we are not. Like most Americans are rational around gun violence and they do want change. They just uh, cannot overcome um, what their lawmakers
0: um, think. There's a piece that I know you're familiar with, um, as am I. Uh, it's a writer, really yeah. talented writer named Jason Figone. Who uh, I mean, I might, if I'm mispronouncing his name, I apologize. I don't, I don't know him. We've never, uh, we've never met outside of a, a quick email or two. And um, he wrote a piece in 2017 uh, titled. Uh, yeah. What bullets do you to do. bodies? Yeah, I think I, I think I have the title correct on that. Um, it's far and away the best piece I've ever read on the topic of just the yeah. the pure damage these weaponry can do to a human being. In many ways, it's it's the larger theme of the piece is that um, these these people, these doctors and surgeons who have to try to save people's lives. If if we were to sort of spend time with them in one of their emergency rooms, yeah, the likelihood is we would change our entire opinion of the gun culture. It's like it's just you you would you would not you would you would never forget what you're seeing. And his piece presented that better than I've ever seen. In fact, to the point where the doctors themselves were saying this piece is meaningless. It will never change. Like they themselves were doing their job, but they were working under yeah. a reality that like why are you even talking to me? Because like nothing's gonna come. It was just an incredible honest piece and it got me thinking of something i wanted to ask you i don't think i would ever advocate for a media outlet to show uh images of children um who had been killed i think that's a sort of a line too far there is a debate that happens and i, I do wonder if maybe it should sort of be debated more how do you feel about showing um the impact of this stuff if let's say a family obviously allowed you to show their loved one um and the result of being killed by like a um, this kind of like heavy machinery—it's yeah. not an easy question. I understand that, and you will absolutely have people who probably will no longer like subscribe to your place or 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 watch your uh, or watch your stuff. But I, I have to be honest, John. There's a part of me that thinks like it might be one of the few ways to actually shock people into recognizing yeah. like the devastation that's happening because well, I feel horrific for Uvaldi, right? And I see these images and I watch on TV. The reality is I'm still 5,000 miles away from, you know what I mean? I could walk, okay. I could walk down my street today and get away from it. I don't have to live with yeah. it. Yeah. But the imagery, if I saw that in my head,
1: maybe I don't forget that.
0: I, yeah. I don't, I'm not saying I have the answer, but I did want to at least ask you about it as someone who's reports on this stuff.
1: Yeah. Uh, I have a lot of thoughts on that. And I'll first address, that that piece that people do not americans do not understand what high-powered semi rifles do to children's bodies they just de- destroy them they destroy them uh to the point that as an example the parents in Uvalde were having to give dna samples because their children were no longer recognizable their faces their their bodies were no longer recognizable so they had to Uh, That's why it took hours. Same thing in San Diego. It it took hours. It takes hours to figure out who's dead because the children's bodies are destroyed. People need to understand that first. Uh, And they don't, right? Um, I don't think we'll see a time where mainstream news outlets run those images, even though there are parents who are willing. There are parents who who have said they want those images shown. What I will say, every lawmaker, every lawmaker should be forced to see them. Particularly if they're going to vote in the Senate that an 18 year old or anybody should continue to have access to a weapon of war. And you know, I'm sure there are uh, uh, people who will take issue that I describe them as weapons of war. But if you talk to combat veterans, the way that they handle their firearms in combat is very much the same way that an AR-15 can function in the hands of a civilian. Uh, rarely do they open them up full auto. They're they're using them semi-automatic in combat routinely they have the same firepower right so that's what we have now we have people in this country who are walking around with weapons that are designed for war nobody's shooting deer with ars they're they're that's not what they're used for right they're used to kill and they're used to destroy the thing that they uh hit so you know i i don't i'm conflicted on showing this to everyday Americans, to readers, to viewers, where I am not at all conflicted is that the people who are making these decisions they should have to live with the cost, understand the cost of your vote. This is what it does to a child. And if you look at that image and you still say, you know, no, it's 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 too important. An 18-year-old, the day after he turns 18, should be able to go into a store and buy a couple of ARs. Um, fine, right? But at least you will have recognized um, the cost of arming someone with that weapon.
0: I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. your time very much um you know if you are on um if you're on twitter one of the most famous tweets as weird as that sounds in the history of that medium was by um dan hodges who was uh he's a commentator a, a uk commentator i think either for the daily mail or something to that effect and he tweeted i'll sort of quote this in retrospect sandy hook marked the end of the u.s gun control debate once america decided killing children was bearable it was over it's one of the probably it's not one of the most uh, tweeted things of all time but it's you know it's really significant hundreds of thousands people i know that the the people who are fighting this every day they hate that yeah they do because they they will say that um it's it's counter to everything that they're doing, and it's defeatist. Yeah. And if one thinks like that, or if the American people think like that, there's no chance for change. Yeah. And I, I happen to agree with that. I, I, I had tweeted that before, and I stopped tweeting it when I, um, when I saw like, sort of how those people who are really in the fight on a daily basis sort of view it. All that yeah. said, John, I do want to ask you this: like, I understand how someone would agree with that. I I I totally understand how you sort of average American sort of who lived through Sandy Hook saw that nothing changed. Yeah. Where where 10 years later and yet another mass shooting has happened at a school yeah. and no one you know n- n- we should be a functioning society where if like 20 adults were killed, like you should change right. things. But the fact that we haven't done it with 8-year-olds and 7-year-olds I don't know what to yeah. think. Yeah like so this long filibuster into the your question for you is do you remain optimistic like you're in the middle of this more than almost any of us like you talk to people on all sides and yet you also talk to victims like can you see and i guess politically is the only way it can happen is there anything that you see on the horizon where something can be done because i do understand those who sort of um, at least agree not agree with but can th- 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 that feel the same as that as that yeah. commentator did in that if you guys didn't do anything then you you just don't give a shit yeah. so i'm not if you and if you're not optimistic don't yeah. fake it but like how do you
1: feel about so this uh, stuff? yeah i get asked this question um in one form or another a lot and i and i get into this a lot in in the book uh I would wager a lot of money that in our lifetimes we will see sweeping gun reform, uh, and the reason being is that all the children who right now live with uh, lockdown drills and actual lockdowns—you know—we did a review a few years ago that found between four and eight million children in this country go through an actual lockdown every year, not a drill, actual lockdown. The vast majority of those caused by. Um, the threat of gun violence, and a huge number of those children thought for a moment they were going to die in their schools. Those kids are going to grow up, and they're going to be in charge, and they're going to be voters. They are native. You know, We use that term around technology. They are native to the threat of gun violence. I, don't, I do not believe that generation. So basically, the kids who are uh, Parkland and younger will be willing to bear this, and more importantly, will be willing to allow their children to go through it, too. I do not believe that, uh, but it's going to take probably twenty years, right? It's going to take that long. Like in the near term, maybe this Congress will pass red flag laws. Like maybe we'll see that. Maybe we'll see uh, Saul Upins, uh or you know Air Fifteens, however we want to describe them, where the age is moved up to twenty-one. Those are good things. Like those are those are things that would actually save probably thousands of lives every year, especially the red flag laws. Will we see the sort of sweeping reform that people are so desperate for soon? No, we won't like that. It's not going to happen. Those you're not going to get those 10 senators to. um, And again, that is how simple this is. Right. At the state level, there has been tons of reform, tons of reform. And that's why those that's why those uh, gun safety activists hate that tweet, because they know what they've accomplished at the local level. They know that mom's demand is outspending the NRA by a wide margin now. Those are things that are meaningful and they matter. The problem is, and this is the, really pisses me off when I get these tweets, is people say, well, you know, Chicago and DC um, and California have strict gun laws, uh, but people still die there from guns. Obviously, gun laws don't work. We do not have closed borders in America, right? So if you're in Chicago, just drive to Indiana and buy a hundred guns and 10 million rounds of ammunition and come back and kill people. That's what they do, right? That's what they've done in, in Virginia for years. People go to gun shows in Virginia, buy a bunch of guns, go sell them on the street for double the price in DC, and then they're used to kill people. So that's why the limit, there are limitations to what any state can do. It has to happen at the federal level. It has to happen for that sort of tangible change for people to feel it and see it. Um, but there has been, and, and so what I would say is that mom's demand in those groups. The Sandy Hook Promise people and Brady and, you know, all these groups that were launched because of Sandy Hook. Right. That was the shooting that launched a thousand ships on this issue. They have built right. a huge foundation. They have built a, a real foundation that the, the reform a decade or two from now will be built on. And it wouldn't it won't ever come without the foundation that they've already built. Right. So some of it is just going unseen, but the switch is all about the 10 senators, right? That's it. Like that's what stands behind. That's what stands in the way of, of America and drastic change is 10 Americans, 10 people.
0: The, this, I think you cited the stat, right? Over 311,000 children have been in a school during yeah. a shooting since Columbine right. in 1999. Yeah. I, I, I would literally be chanting that at every yeah. center in the United States. Like yeah. if they walked past me, like how, how could you see that stat and not do something? But that's where we are. I have a, a couple, uh, two quick things here, and, and then I will let you go. And I'll just sort of make an aside that I, I don't know if it's like, I say you can appreciate, it's probably not the way to sort of phrase it, but like, you know, I live in Toronto now. I think you know that. Um, and that's been sort of, Eye-opening and interesting to live in, obviously a foreign country and watch watch the United States from afar. Canada is by no means a perfect country; has the same issues the U.S. has: racism, sexism, uh, has violence here for sure. But it's a really big but here. Every Canadian I talk to, especially when it comes to assault weapons, they they cannot even fathom like the possibility of owning one. Do you know what I mean? Like there's there are people here in this country who, especially Western Canada, who believe that they should have a right to bear arms and and would fight hard for that right And i understand that. i respect that certainly especially legalized gunnership but that's really where the difference is and i wonder that seems to be the difference in western societies is like there's one country in the world that at least at this point doesn't find that mind-boggling or obscene and that's the u.s yeah it's the only one yeah we and
1: yeah we stand alone
0: yeah yeah stand alone Last one here. You know the. Um... And I would.
1: I would, I'll go quickly ahead and say this. So I, I. I do believe in the right to own a gun. Like I think. As do I. I think as society. I think uh, free societies. People should have the right to own a gun. I think the Second Amendment is an important thing. Um, but you know what Canada does is they make it difficult, right? Y- y- Correct. Y- there's and people often say, well, you know, there's. Uh, I think I believe I could be getting this wrong, but I believe there's more guns per capita in Canada than there are in the U.S. Um, A big difference is uh, air 15s right on one end and on the other end, handguns, handguns account for the overwhelming majority,
0: which is why you just saw the legislation happen. Right. Yeah. This week in Canada. Right. You're correct. Yeah.
1: Overwhelming majority of of gun deaths are uh, suicides. Same thing. Um, But even school shootings, most school shooters use handguns. Uh, So they just don't kill nearly as many. At, At a
0: very base level, at the at the most base level. It, you, you haven't it nailed it is just harder to right. acquire it here than it is in the u.s right. and that makes a difference that whatever those are impediments
1: yeah. are that's a difference big. yeah it makes a huge difference a huge difference uh you know because right now i mean we have over by some estimates, we have over 400 million guns in america
0: yeah i've read those sta- statistics yeah. it's it's almost it's you almost can't comprehend right well because yeah. when
1: a gun is manufactured and it enters the market it never goes away they don't expire right they just remain yeah. unless somebody takes it yeah and has it melted down, you know, or, or uh, gives it to a, a, a police department, the gun just exists out there um, forever. You know, so there are ways to have a society where people own guns and do it in a way where you don't have 45,000 people dying every year uh, from them. So it's it's not unattainable. And we know that because of every other country, right? It, it's possible. Uh, it's just you know, we're just unwilling to this point to regulate them almost at all at the federal level.
0: Last well, one for me is, uh, you know, in in doing the work that you do, it would strike me that you you have to take breaks and and you, you got to have other things away from this stuff to just, I guess, allow you to do yeah. it. And I'm, I'm not comparing it necessarily to a war correspondent, but. But in many ways, like the trauma like exists on sort of what you see and what, you know, you, the brain can only process so much. Yeah. So in terms of self-care, um, like what do you do? Do you want to walk away from this stuff for like a month or two to just take a break? Do you, I don't know, do you make it a point to sort of like have a passion, like some kind of sports passion or something like that? But, you know, it seemed to me that like in order to do this kind of work, and I, I think it's in many ways similar to those who cover... Uh, like the worst of the the, the web, yeah. like the darkest of the dark right. web, and like you know, you just sort of see stuff and process so much of that stuff. I think it can fuck with your brain pretty yeah. badly. So, what do you do to at least sort of get away where you can you you can feel like you're up to whatever the next assignment is?
1: Yeah, you know, I've never I've never been great at that part of it, and it, I I decided on Tuesday finally that at the, you know I would start talking to a therapist. I just decided like that was the Wow, because I didn't like how I, I didn't like in that early hour how kind of my body responded. You know, like it was a little bit unnerving just the way I responded. I, mean, I went through a period of uh, denial, complete denial. Where after the governor made that announcement of how many kids had died, I talked to my editor, and you know, I think he got it wrong. I just, I don't think that's correct. I think he misspoke. I don't think. I think it was fourteen at that point. I was just, my brain was unwilling to accept that 14 elementary school kids had just been murdered again. And I just, uh, you know, it was, I just had a dark, (laughs) I had about a dark hour, you know, and then as soon as I had an assignment, I was better. Um, But, you know, my wife and my editor and my colleagues have uh, tried to talk me into uh, seeing a therapist for a long time, just to make sure that I'm not kind of storing this up in a way that's going to be harmful down the road. And and I tell people all the time they should get therapy. So I'm finally gonna, um, I'm finally gonna do that. Uh, you know, a thing that, good, a thing that you know I've done for a long time. Certainly, sports are for me a huge outlet. I'm a diehard Gator fan and a Saints fan. Um, so you know, outside of I'm always healthier in, during football season than I am outside of it because I have that uh, outlet. Although my dad and I have taken up uh, uh, sports betting on golf. Uh, which has been <laughs> a nice uh, outlet. My wife is
0: not easy yeah, to match. No, no, it's, <laughs>
1: it's, it's not. Yeah. Uh, the odds are are long though, which is enticing. Um, yeah. But you know, my wife and I for a long time, I would I would like we'd leave the country for like two weeks, you know, we're pre-pandemic. That was the way that I really reset and I kind of yeah. flushed all that all that out. Um, you know, the only period that I took a break from Kids and gun violence was to write about kids and COVID. Um, the first year of COVID. I I I wrote a series on that. Um, I held a series that I was gonna gun violence series is gonna do and did that. I mean, every year I think I'm done, right? Every year I think this is it. Uh I can't I have nothing left to say. Um, I'm gonna move on. And then I always find something else that I feel um excuse me, I lose my voice here, but I feel obligated to say, right? I, I Or some other thing. And this year, you know, it's the series on how many uh, kids lose parents to gun violence every year. I have at least two more pieces on that. Now I'm going to do some at least one big League piece. And, uh, uh, you know, so I don't know. I I feel like I feel like I'm able to do this work for this period of my life. Um, And I feel like as long as I am capable of it, uh, that I I'm obligated to keep doing it. You know, I feel an obligation to keep doing it, and um, I feel an honor too that I get to tell these kids stories. It really is when I go to Baltimore and my editors allow me to tell work on that story for two months about kids who are invisible to most of society, and frankly, writing a story that most people are not going to click on, because the truth is, uh, most people do not care about black children who are dealing with gun violence. They do not care, and I know that because I see the metrics on the stories I write about white kids versus the stories I write about black kids. But the post says, no, we're gonna support you. We're gonna spend money. We're gonna let you spend two months on this. Go do it, right? Uh, as long as that's the world I'm living in, I feel like, and as long as I can take it, uh, you know, I'm gonna keep doing it. I'm gonna keep telling these stories. And, and for me, you know, there was one moment that I'll hang on to for a long time. So my book, uh, there was an excerpt that the post ran Uh, from my book this was back last year and the chapter that we pulled out was about a little boy named Tyler he was 11 years old in South Carolina when he uh, great kid great family devoted parents um, no red flags at all with this kid he was straight A's like went to church on his own every weekend like just you know in every way right this was a squared away kid Uh, one night his family gets Taco Bell and his parents are in the living room and he decides he's gonna go watch cartoons in their bedroom. He knows where the key to his dad's gun safe is. He gets the key. He opens the safe. He takes out the one loaded gun and he shoots himself. Uh, And his dad rushes in and finds his son dying, right? His, his, uh, a bullet in his head. Um, You know, after that story ran, I heard from gun owners all over the country who said, uh, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to buy your book. Some of them said, I'm not going to buy your book because I don't think I can handle it or politically I wouldn't agree with it, but I'm going to buy a gun safe because I have kids and Tyler reminds me of my kids. Uh, and it felt like, well, hmm. <laughs> that's worth it, right? Like, even if even if this book is too yeah. hard for some people to read, um, if you can reach a few people, I mean, for me, that is is worth it because maybe that's a life saved, right? <laughs> and the ripple effects from these things is so widespread that if you can just stop one, to me, that feels... Uh, worth it. So, you know, for now, I'm going to, I'm going to keep at it. John
0: Woodrow Cox is an enterprise reporter for the Washington Post. Uh, His focus is on the impact of gun violence on children. Uh, He's referenced his book during this podcast, that's Children Under Fire, An American Crisis, you go to Amazon, uh, or wherever you get uh, books and check that out. Listen, John, uh, I know you get asked these kind of questions a lot. And it's can't be easy to sort of just continue to sort of answer them because it's emotionally late. And when you answer them, but I really appreciate you coming on the uh, sports media podcast. And I will say just as a th- son of a therapist, my mother was a uh, shrink for 40 uh, something years. It's it's, it, it will be a good investment and the, the bet, maybe the be- arguably the best investment you can make is an investment yourself. So I, uh, I wave the therapy <laughs> yeah. flag here. In the, in these, I appreciate
1: it, Richard. Parts. And thank you for having me on. I'm a big fan of you and of the podcast and of all your work. So um, it's an honor to come on and talk to you.
0: Next next time you come on, we'll talk about uh you know, talk about Tom Brady Fox, Aikman, and, and, my, golf, and, and my golf betting you system can give, me your, yeah. you can, give me your take on uh, you know, Nance at the Masters and, and who you like in college football as a gator. It's been a <laughs> it's rough, been rough couple, a years rough couple, couple of, you, John, of years for you, John. But yeah. maybe my comeback though. I am old enough to remember the uh the Spurrier days, so you know there's 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 there,
1: there have been glory days before for four national championships, two basketball, yeah. Those oh, were really? that was a good time to be a in Florida. Florida, yeah.
0: Was that uh,
1: that was Urban's, Urban? yeah. Urban's was uh, era was Urban or, or Billy, uh, Billy d yeah. We had two basketball and two football right in uh, close succession. Oh yeah, but, yeah Billy yeah, Don Don that was but, a good.
0: Uh, don't make me go into a conversation with Florida people about <laughs> the Urban Meyer. It's probably <laughs> for you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Thank All you right, John, me. thank you. Uh, please continue your work. All right, man. I appreciate it. it. All right, back in the studio. My thanks to John uh, Woodrow-Cox uh, for giving me time. He, You know, again, he's usually doing the NPRs in other places of the world, so it was real nice of him to, to come on, although understandably the topic is, is awful. Um, again, if you go to the archives, uh, you will find sports media conversations I think that you'll enjoy recently Tom Berducci and Roger joined on the Baseball writing. had all of the wrestling Tony Khan uh, CEO and had a creative I should say Tony Khan he's also the corner of the Jaguars just on how he processes media his media strategy for his um, his organization Leslie Visser was a recent guest on this podcast we did Can Tom Brady succeed as a broadcaster with Chad from the Boston Globe Larry Kalmas on calling Rich Strikes Derby win and how to call horse racing so should be some stuff on here that you'll appreciate uh, leaving reviews uh, and five-star reviews, for that matter, has significant meaning for this podcast. That's how this podcast continues. So, if you do like these conversations, if you find them worthwhile, well, please head to Apple uh, or Stitcher, Google Play, however you get your podcast. Leave us a five-star review and a nice note. Stuff us nice have meaning. I want to thank Patrick Antonetti for his support and hard work. Thank you to Cadence Thirteen, as always, and mostly thanks to you for listening. We'll see you soon on the Sports Media Podcast.